I'm going to continue to speak on heaven, uh, and we're going to be doing this for the next few weeks because heaven is just such a fun topic to talk about. I just love it. I just, if, if any topic of all for me to speak on, it's heaven. And it's not because I have a pie-in-the-sky mentality or it's not because I go stick my head in the sand someplace and just wait for it. No, because I think there is so much that we need to be doing in preparation for heaven. Heaven is going to be that special of a place that there, is, that there are things that we are to be doing now to preparing for our time when we get there to make it better. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about today that heaven is truly worth living for. It's worth living for today. Last week, we spent the day on the aspect of planning for heaven and what that kind of means and how we have to plan things out in our life to make things effective, and that's true. And today, I want to just let you know that it's going to be worth it for all the planning that you're doing, or um, it, it is worth it. You know, and, and I know that to most of us, when we say, is heaven really worth it? Is heaven really worth it? I know for some of us, that sounds like a silly question because, of course, it's worth it. But yet, there is a worldly perspective of heaven that a lot of people look at it and say, you know, it's really not. It's going to be kind of a boring place, actually, because it's going to be like church all the time. It's going to be like going, that's why people aren't here right now, because this is boring. This is the most exciting place to be. I would rather be no other place than in a place where the Lord is. But yet, people have a concept that heaven is going to be weird, it's going to be boring, and it's just not going to have the, the significance of what us crazy people think it's going to be like. But I'm telling you what, if you have a good understanding of heaven, that's the last thing from the truth. Now, we may not know all the specific details of what heaven's going to be like as far as all the sights and the sounds and the smells and all of the things, and, and that's good. We don't need to know all that, but I can tell you that it's going to be very significant that it's going to be very much worthwhile for you to spend your time right now preparing yourself and doing everything you need to do to get to heaven because when you finally get there, you're going to realize, man, if I only would have really listened to the preacher, if I really would have read the word and listened to what the word says, I would have done so much more to get myself ready to be here because there is so much there. But it depends upon what I'm doing right now. But it all depends about what I'm doing right now. Listen to this very important fact. It's not, you're not being saved by what you're doing today. You're being saved by the blood of Christ. But it's what I'm doing in the process of living it out day to day is what is going to create myself great rewards in heaven. And I know some people have a problem with that mentality, but we're going to be talking about that today and probably other weeks in advance. Let me start with a story. God gives us some motivational tools to help us get motivated because if you're, if you're like me, sometimes you need a good old kick in the hind end to get going, right? Sometimes we have a great idea, but it takes a motivational starter to get going. Let me, let me read you a little story here written by Dr. Richard Strauss. This is a, let me just read this. Picture yourself an Olympic athlete, athlete training for the marathon. You run, 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 day after day, week after week, month after month. There are days you think your body cannot put out another ounce of energy, but you keep pushing yourself because you know that it's going to take that little extra effort to win. The day of the race finally arrives. The gun sounds and you're off and running. The competition is fierce, but you stay with the leaders, giving it everything you've got. Every cell in your body is crying out for relief, but you keep running right up to the final kick. Your lungs are about to burst. Your arms and legs feel like lead, but you keep pressing on. 
And now it's time for the award ceremony. You take your place on the top step. The judge drapes that gold medal around your neck. The national anthem is playing. The crowd is cheering. Tears of joy are streaming down your cheeks. Was it worth the work? I got to imagine those Olympic athletes, when they are on that pedestal, and they're feeling the emotions of standing there for the nation, tears streaming down their cheeks. I got to tell you, they will say it was worth every sweaty day, every painful mile I ran, it was worth it. Or how about this example? Or picture yourself a young executive. You've poured your life into the company for several years and have been largely responsible for its spectacular growth. And one day the president walks into your office, sits down and announces that he wants to offer you a position as vice president, along with the stock option package that could set you up financially for the rest of your life. Was it worth the work? Yeah, I think you're going to say it was worth the work when I could have that kind of a reward. In either case, I think we all would agree that the effort to attain that level of success was worth the effort. But what happens if, in each case, the runner or the executive came up a little bit short and they gassed out at the end? Or he was overlooked by the promotion because he knew he didn't do the best that he could have done? What do you think they think at the end of the day? Do you think they're going to think, man, I, maybe I should have given a little bit more? I had more to give. I mean, I could have worked a little bit harder, but I took some days off in my training. I said, oh, it's not that necessary. I'll, when I get there, believe me, I'll run a great race. Or when I get to that day of promotion, oh, they'll just like me because I'm a good guy. I think they're going to have some regrets. This is a very important topic for us to be thinking about now, and the timing is perfect that we're talking about this now while we're on earth because we have some things to be thinking about when it comes to heaven. That's exactly what our mission statement for this church says, to be heavenly effective through earthly relevance, that we are going to be heavenly effective or we're going to have heavenly enjoyment, if you don't like the word effective. We're going to have heavenly joy, heavenly enjoyment, only as though we are working through our efforts here on earth. And I'm going to go to, we're going to talk through that so you understand what I'm talking about. But that is really important, that we will enjoy the benefits of heaven as appropriately as we're working here on earth. There's a reward based upon our effort. We really are going to be able to enjoy great benefits as we work here. Can I say that it, it, we can rightfully strive for heaven? We can rightfully strive for heaven and everything that that entails? Some people have a problem with that concept that we strive for heaven. But can I tell you, can I ask you, well, first of all, what does striving mean? What does striving mean? What, what does striving look like to you? Here's some other words. Go to the dictionary, look at some synonyms, and this is what striving means. Go all out. Do your best. Perform to your utmost. Make every effort. Leave no opportunity unturned or undone. Pull out all the stops. Leave it all on the floor. All the stuff that says at the end of the day, I've given it all. That's striving. That's what it means to strive to be the best at what you can do. And don't, understand, don't misunderstand what it means to strive for heaven because there's nothing wrong with striving for the right things. We strive in our life for all kinds of things that don't last. 
We strive for all kinds of things here in this life that will fade at the end of the day or maybe even they're a good thing, but when we get it, we realize that it really wasn't all that we thought it was. You know, go back in your life and go back into some of the things that you've worked hard for. Really worked hard to get that thing. And then once you got it, you realize that's it. That's all it is. And how quickly I'm over it. See, we can strive for the wrong things or we can strive for the right things. I am asking you and I am suggesting that we strive for the things that are eternal that will reap eternal rewards. So we strive for the things that are heavenly. What does that look like? We're going to talk through that today. Let's get back to our message. Heaven is worth living for. Heaven is worth living for. There are two specific judgments mentioned in the Bible. One is for believers and the other is for unbelievers. There's a judgment seat of Christ for the believers and there's the white throne judgment for the unbelievers. We're going to talk about about those today, but we're going to focus more on the judgment for the believers. But before we even get there, There is another judgment that happens prior to that, which isn't really named in the Bible, but we can call it the judgment of faith or the judgment of belief. And that judgment happens immediately after you die. Immediately after you take your last breath, you are judged as to whether you go to heaven or you go to hell. That's the first judgment. And that is not based upon your works. That is based upon your belief. That is based upon your acceptance of Jesus Christ. That is based upon your understanding of what he did for you on the cross and that he sacrificed for your sin and he took your sin so that you didn't have to bear the consequences of that sin, which is death. So that belief is what is going to get you into heaven, not your works. Does that all make, we all clear on that one? So either you're going, to, you're going to be judged immediately at death and you're immediately going to go into heaven or you're going to go into hell based upon your belief, not on your works. But if we're talking about heaven, we must talk about hell. There is a hell as well as there is a heaven. There is a punishment as much as there is a reward. All based upon your belief. That's something that we must know right now because here's the beautiful part about it is after that judgment is made and you're in heaven, eternal life is eternal and you will never, ever, ever leave God's presence again. So once you're in heaven, you're there. On the other hand, if you don't have a believing or saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is and you take your last breath, then you're spending an eternity in hell. So heaven, you never have to leave, and hell, you never get to get out. You never have to leave heaven, but you never get out of hell. That's important. That's why that first judgment is extremely important that we understand that. First, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are, 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 whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We will give an, we will give an account and we will be judged. So we make it our goal to do what? What does this verse say? We make it our goal to do what? Say it again. Please him. 
There's nothing wrong with the goal to please God. This is not working for salvation. It simply says exactly what it says, that we're pleasing God. Why do we get ourselves all worked up over this? Some people have a really hard time when we start thinking about that we have to please God, that God can be unpleased with us. Sometimes we get, sometimes we get, we get this thing called love and pleasing God mixed up. God's love for us is truly unconditional love. He is going to love you till the day you die, no matter what you do. But that doesn't mean he's going to be pleased with you until the day you die. Let me give you an example. Let's say that I'm, let's say that I'm Max's dad, okay? I'm older than you now, Max, even though not, I'm not really. I'm Max's dad, and Michael and Max are in a room, they're playing, and a couple dollars happens to fall out of Michael's pocket. And Max picks it up, right? So now Max has got Mike's money. And Michael finally realizes, hey, my money's gone. He goes, Max, do you have my money? And Max says, no, Mike, I don't have your money. And, I, and I'm the dad, and I'm watching all this. So do you think that I am going to be pleased with Max because he's lied to Michael about not, giving his, not having his money? Do you think I'm pleased or displeased? What am I, pleased or displeased? Okay, now, is that going to change my love for Max? He's still my son. So my love hasn't changed, but my pleasure in Max has changed. Now, what happens if I see the same scenario, and as soon as Max sees Michael drop the money, he picks up the money, and he says, Hey, Mike, you dropped a couple bucks. Here's your money back, before Michael even had to ask. Now, let me ask you again. I'm the dad. I'm watching all this. Am I pleased with Max's behavior at that point? Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased because Max is showing integrity. He's showing honesty, right? And he's going to, he's going to Mike and say, hey, Mike, here's your money back. And Mike says, oh, I didn't even know I dropped it. Hey, thanks, man. All right, so I'm pleased. But has it changed my love? No, my love's the same, but my pleasure has increased. You see, so we have to get that right, that God sees all of our lives. God sees every action that I do, every action that I don't do, and he is looking at me, and, he's one, and, and I am, have the opportunity to please him every day. So I make it my goal to please him, not to make him love me more, not to even try to make him love me more because that's impossible. He can't love me anymore. Perfection is perfection. He can't love me anymore, but he can be pleased with me. And that's my goal. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. This is Paul praying for the Colossians, that we would walk in a relationship with the Lord that would be fully pleasing to him. That's our goal. Maybe the indicator here is not so much what I'm doing to please or displease God as my measurement of is, is God going to be loving or loving me more or less. Maybe it's more of an indicator of how much I love him. Maybe it's more of an indicator of maybe I don't love him enough because I'm not seeking to please him. Does that make sense? So if maybe I'm not having, maybe the problem's on my end. If I loved him enough, I want to please him. 
You want to please the people you love, correct? I mean, would you ever willfully displease somebody that you loved? You might do it unintentionally, but intentionally, no. We please the people that we love. And so if you're having a hard time with this desiring to please the Lord, maybe you should do a little measurement in your heart and say, maybe I don't love him enough. Maybe the problem's on my end. Maybe I need to rekindle that love for God because I'm not having a desire to please him. That's a good wake-up call. It's a good thing that we should be asking ourselves those kind of questions. But Colossians 1, 9, we just read, is pretty simple and pretty straightforward interpretation of God's word that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what this prayer is all about, that we would acknowledge God and we would want to walk that way. Let's go back to our text, verse 10 of our text. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether, whether good or bad. We all individually are going to stand before the Lord someday. We're not going to stand in a group. We're not going to stand in a church service. We're going to come one by one before the Lord and we're going to give an account of our life. We're evaluated on earth all the time and we don't seem to have a problem with it. We're evaluated all the time here. In the two examples that we read, the athlete was evaluated on his running performance by how he placed in the end of the race. Or the executive, he was evaluated by his job performance if he got the promotion or not. And, there, there, and there's all kinds of other areas in our lives that we're evaluated on every day, and we don't seem to think there's a problem with that, do we? Is there a problem with being evaluated on your job? Is there a problem with having evaluation if you do work for somebody or whatever? No, there's not. We don't have any problem with that. But yet we have a problem potentially thinking that God's going to evaluate us. The reality is when we're evaluated here on earth, many times, if not most of the time, we're evaluated by judges or people that aren't even fair in their evaluations. And we're okay with it. I mean, you know, I, figure skating is an interesting phenomenon for me because these figure skaters go out and they do these routines and they're beautiful and they're doing these double flips and double toe loops and all these different things and they're describing them all. And at the end of the day, to me, the, the uneducated figure skate watcher, they're all perfect. But yet, somehow, these judges are taking points off and points off and points off. And all of a sudden, one, which I thought was better than the other one, it was scored higher. And that just drives me crazy. Because it's like, how do you really know who's better? <laughs> you know, whereas if it's a race, you know who crosses the finish line first. There's a, you know, that's, a, that's a digital measurement versus an analog measurement of figure skaters or property appraisers. Same thing. It's just they become judgments. And they're not always perfect. They're on their scale or their political scale as well. But when we stand before God someday, that evaluation before him is going to be perfect because he's the perfect judge. And his evaluation is going to be just exactly the way we lived. He's not going to exaggerate anything. He's not going to miss anything. He's going to say, guys, this is exactly the way you were living and this is exactly the reward or the punishment due you without any compromise. That's pretty cool. It's pretty scary. 
My Bible, my Bible commentary says this about this particular passage. It says, The Bible teaches that God's people will someday have to give an account for their earthly lives at the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, this is the, seat, this is the judgment for believers, the judgment seat of Christ. We are not saved or made right with God by our own works or actions. We are saved by God's grace and our life-surrendering faith in Christ. But we will still be judged according to what we did or did not do in our earthly life. The Greek word here translated as judgment seat is, is the word bima, B-E-M-A, bima, the bima seat. And in the Greco-Roman times, this was a raised platform like a speaker's platform or some type of another high level, and, and the speakers would have to climb to get up to it. So it was above everybody else. And the person sitting on that beam of seat could be a king or a judge or somebody carrying out some ruling, had authority over his people, could be a military commander. And they would sit in that place of honor and they would be the judge. And from there, in the beam of seat, they would then give out the evaluations and the compensation accordingly. But in all cases, it was a place of authority. It was a place of respect. It was a place of honor. And Paul uses that same terminology, bema seat, as this, as this type of seating where Christ will sit and he will judge us. He will judge us, the Christians, he will judge us in the bema seat from a place of authority, a place that he sees the whole playing field and he can make a righteous judgment call. That's the kind of judge we're going to have. And there's two major purposes for the bema seat. There's two major purposes. One is evaluation, that we're being evaluated and what, what we're doing. And the other purpose is compensation. We're going to be compensated based upon how we're evaluated. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. He says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, or the bema seat. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to him, to me and every tongue shall confess to God so then each of us will give an account of himself to God each of us will give an account of himself to God now Paul is talking to the church here because he calls us brothers brothers he's not he's talking to the church there will be a time of accountability of all people including the Christians some Christians think that we have that we're not going to be evaluated. Once we get to heaven, once we're in, we're in, and there's no judgments thereafter. That's not what the Bible speaks about at all. The Bible speaks very clearly about that, and it talks about rewards, and we're going to get into that more as we get into the next few weeks. But we need to recognize that there is a day coming when we will have a divine judge, and he will give us true judgment over our lives, how we've lived, and we will be evaluated and compensated appropriately. In fact, What's the point of being evaluated if there's no compensation? What's the point of being evaluated if there's no compensation for what you've done? There is no point. So there has to be compensation along with it. So the Bema seat will be a time of evaluation and will be a time of compensation. Evaluations or reviews or the judgments, it's only meaningful as there is an appropriate compensation for the action being done. A performance review without any potential pay raise means nothing, does it? I've been through a number of performance reviews when I was in the automotive industry, and if they say, hey, Mike, good job, and if there wasn't a little pay raise to go with it, I kind of walked out feeling a little bit empty. Winning a race without some type of a medal or some type of a prize at the end of the day would wonder if it was really worth it. So that guy ran so hard, and he won the race, and then he said, hey, good job. Okay, next race. <laughs> 
No, there's a compensation there with that. And compensation helps motivate the person to achieve their highest potential. When you know you're going to get a raise come along with that performance review, it makes it a little bit easier to work harder in the process knowing that I can, la- I can expect and know that I'm going to have a compensation for a good evaluation. Make sense? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. He gives a very good analogy of the athlete running the race. And we all run to win. None of us run to come in second place. We run to win the prize. Now, the beautiful thing about this is that we are running a spiritual race. I am not running against you, and you're not running against me. I'm running a spiritual race against my own flesh and blood. It's my race, and I need to know that, and you need to know that we all can get the gold. We all have the opportunity to get the gold medal if we will run the race against your own particular flesh situation to win the race. All of us can have positions of prominence and status in God's kingdom. All of us will get God's perfect justice system to reward us for the race that we've run. But just because we can doesn't mean that each person will get the reward unless they run the race intending to win the race. You know what I mean? This is not, you're not going to get an uh, award certificate just because you participated. <laughs> this is not just like our, our politically correct ways of rewarding our kids today. Instead of, instead of rewarding the kid that does the best job in the race or whatever he's doing, we said, no, we're going to give a participation award and everybody gets trophies. Whether you worked hard or not, everybody gets a trophy. That's not the way it's going to work in God's kingdom. And that's not a mean God. That's a just God. And he's given us fair warning. He's given us fair instruction up not right now so that we now know what we need to be doing to run the race. And I'm not going to get Max's reward. Or, I'm not gonna, or Margaret's not going to get my award. Recognize that God's reward system is so vast and so big that you all, we all have the opportunity to get our first prize as we run the race in our personal life. It's exciting. Amen. We're not competing against each other. I don't have to try to beat you out. God's got enough for everybody. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. It says, the one who plants, this is talking about how, how many people are going to get, are, are in the process of the race and, and, and the work being done here. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds in this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, 
Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Does that clearly indicate that there's going to be more than, we're going to be working as a team. One waters, one plants, one harvest, and so forth, but each one will be rewarded according to what you have done. And you will be rewarded according to that, not what I'm doing, but you're doing. We'll talk about rewards in, in other weeks because there's a lot more to talk about it. But I just will tell you that I've heard many Christians struggle with the concept that God rewards people differently when they get to heaven. They just think that heaven is going to be one glorified place where everybody's going to be the same level. Everybody's going to get the same reward. And I will just tell you that that's not true. Heaven is not based on the way we understand heaven. Heaven is based on God's perfect rule and his perfect justice system. And if he said that he is going to reward others based upon their works, then he's going to reward us based upon our works. And my works will probably be different than your works. And we're going to be rewarded differently. Nothing wrong with that. Don't get hung up over that. This is not a, I'm going to get it because God doesn't have enough to go around. Problem. So what is the purpose of rewards? Often we're rewarded here in this life or not, based upon what we do. And often, quite often, rewards are held out as little carrots for us to do some things. It's just the way it is. So what's the purpose of rewards? The answer, I believe, is simple. Rewards are one of God's primary means of motivating us to obey him. Rewards are motivators. Let's be honest. We all need motivation every once in a while, don't we? We all need to be motivated a little bit. We're not self-motivated all the time. God is a great motivator, motivator and he uses different ways to motivate us, actually. God uses, let me tell you what else, God, God uses love to motivate. God uses love to motivate us. His love is unconditional, and that inspires our love for him as well, that we're to love him back. As we see his unwavering love for us, hopefully it will motivate us to return that love back to him. Love is a motivator. 1 John 4, 16 through 19. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So God uses his unconditional love to motivate us to love him back. I need to be a big reflector. I need to be the moon on a full moon night. I need to be the full moon reflecting the love of God back. Right? Amen. That's a motivator. Love become, should become one of our goals. It should help us to want to live a life of complete obedience to him. John chapter 14, verse 15 through 16, and then skipping down to verse 23, but it says, if you love me, this is Jesus speaking now, okay? In the Gospel of John, if you love me, Jesus says, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. 
And Jesus replied in verse 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Okay? Jesus is clearly saying, I'm using love as a motivator. You love me, you obey me, my Father is going to reward you in heaven. That's Jesus' words. What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with the fact that God motivates us with love. Another motivator God uses is fear. God uses fear to motivate us. Now, we just said that perfect love drives out all fear, but what kind of fear are we talking about that God uses to motivate us with? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. So we make it our goal to please him. There's that, there's that statement again. We make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home, in the body, or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since we know, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What is plain to God, and I hope, is also plain in your conscience. So basically, this fear of the Lord, this awesome respect of the Lord, will help us to want to give, share our faith with others so that they also then can have and experience the same rewards we're going to experience. So fear does motivate us. But it's not a frightful type or an alarmist type of fear. It's that awesome level of respect, fear, that we're going to stand before the most powerful and just entity that is beyond our comprehension someday, and we're going to stand before him, and he's going to look us right in the eye, and we're going to give an account. That puts a little bit of fear in me. Doesn't that you? That it's going to be laid bare. You're going to be naked before the world. That puts a little bit of fear in me, and I want to make sure that I've done everything I can to be pleasing to the Lord while I have opportunity, and that's today. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5. I tell you, my friends, Jesus speaking, Jesus speaking again, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who's Jesus talking about? Who's he talking about? You know, he's talking about his father. He's talking about fear him who can throw you into hell. We, are, have to, we, need, we need to be an awesome respect of the Father who is going to give Jesus the power to judge. Yeah. Kenneth Boa, author of a book called Conform to His Image, says this about motivational aspect of fearing God over fearing man. He says, Although the loving and omnipotent God is worthy of far more relevance than we accord people, Jesus knows that our natural tendency is to be more concerned about the opinions and responses of people whom we can see than about the favor of God whom we cannot see. Jesus' words remind us that succumbing to this tendency to play to the visible over the invisible is a serious mistake because the consequences of disobedience to God are so much greater than the consequences of disobedience to people. Fear is a great motivator so that we can live a holy life before God. Be holy as I am holy, the Bible says. And that's good. Motivators can help us to live a life of holiness. Now, God also uses rewards to motivate. Rewards offer a person a great benefit over the other motivators because there's always there's something in it for them. 
There's always something in it. When you get a reward coming, you know there's something good coming for you later. That's a motivator. And I know it sounds selfish and maybe immature to think about it that way, but I can say that this is God's idea, not mine. I'm not making this up. I'm reading the scripture, and the scripture says God uses rewards to motivate me. And that's not selfish, and it's not immature. Rather, it shows a level of maturity, recognizing that as I understand how this happens, it gives me confidence and peace to move and walk in it. There's many recorded areas in Scripture where God motivated people by rewarding them. Going back to the, Deut- the Old Testament, let's just touch this real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 11 through 15. God is speaking to his people. Therefore, take care to follow the commands and the decrees and the laws that I give you today. Verse 12, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of life love with you that he swore to his ancestors. And then he goes on, I'm not going to read all this, but then he goes on and he talks about how God is going to bless and increase their numbers, how he's going to bless their, their crops, he's going to bless their womb, he's going to bless their herds and their lambs and their flocks, and he's going to bless them more than any other people, and that, that no one will be childless, they won't have, none of their livestock will be without young. It's going to be a great time of blessing. And God says, I will bless you like this if you keep my commands. If you do that, I'm, what I'm telling you today and obey my laws and my commands, I will bring these blessings on you. God is a concerning, that is a promise of the Lord. He's a conditional in that regard when it comes to blessings. And this is, and he, he gives us similar lessons today in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets you were, you were before, who were before you. He's going to reward you if you are standing strong against all the lies and all the other stuff coming against you. Luke chapter 6, verses 35. But love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, for you will be children of the Most High. Again, rewards for doing the right things. Colossians chapter 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And then finally, Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Look, this is Jesus speaking. I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. Awesome. Once again, Kenneth Boa says in his book, Scripture affirms that the experience of heaven and hell will not be uniform since there will appear to be degrees of punishment and degrees of reward. While salvation is by grace, rewards in the kingdom of heaven are based on works. This means that the quality of our life on this planet has eternal consequences and that how we live in this temporal realm will have a direct bearing on the quality of eternity. And some will say, isn't that a rather selfish motive that you're obeying God so that you can get something for yourself out of it? Does that sound selfish? Does it sound like it's immature? That our desire for rewards should be, accom- should be accompanied um, with, that, with that promise that God's going to reward us as our, of our effort. But let me ask you the question, is there anything wrong with the fact that um, we don't have any problem rewarding that a- Olympic athlete for running a good race? We don't have any problem with rewarding people for doing good jobs here on earth. 
So why would we have a problem with God rewarding people in heaven that have done a good job living, on, living eternally here? It just flows right into what we're used to already. It's the enemy that would want to bring into you the fact that, oh, that's not right because that means you're selfish. No, you're not selfish. You're just being obedient. You're just doing what God's word has said. You're working because as you work with the right motives, with the right motives are very key, you work with the right motives, God will reward. If you're working to be seen by men, if you're working to um, have a, a me-first attitude, well, then your reward's probably here on earth. But if you're working truly with a heart for the Lord, you will be rewarded. And this is God's idea. Let me remind you, this is God's idea, not mine. Jackie, would you come as we finish up this morning? And here's the thing. You know, if this is God's idea, then who are we to question it? Satan questions lots of things that God says. Satan is the great tempter. Satan is the great, the great questioner of who is God. Did God really say? Remember, he... He questioned that to Eve right at the beginning. Did God really say? That's what, God does. That's what Satan does. He questions what God says. I'm not going to question what God says. When God says he does things, I'm not going to question him. I'm just going to take it for what it says. And I'm going to do my best to move that way. Rewards should be a great motivator for us. It should strengthen our love and our commitment to him. And it should give us an assurance that truly God has a great plan in store for us. Let me end with the story from Our Daily Bread, which comes from the December 29, 1989 issue. Let me, read, let me read the story. It says, One stormy night many years ago, an elderly couple entered the lobby of a small hotel and asked for a room. The clerk said they were filled, as were all the hotels in town. But I can't send a fine couple like you out in the rain, he said. Would you be willing to sleep in my room? And the couple hesitated, but the clerk insisted. The next morning when the man paid his bill, he said, you're the kind of man who should be managing the best hotel in the United States. Someday I'll build it for you. The clerk smiled politely. A few years later, that clerk received a letter from that elderly man, recalling that stormy night and asking him to come to New York. A round-trip ticket was enclosed. When the clerk arrived, his host took him to the corner of 5th Avenue and 40, 34th Street, where stood a magnificent new building. That, exclaimed the man, is the hotel I have built for you to manage. The man was William Waldorf Astor, and that hotel was the original Waldorf Astoria. The young clerk, George C. Bolt, became its first manager. You see, if we, don't have, if we don't have a problem rewarding people on earth this way, can you imagine the joy that God is going to have when he says, come on, I've got a great reward for you. You worked hard for me. You were diligent. You were true. You were honest. You had great integrity. I'm well pleased with you. Come up. I want to show you your hotel. Now you're going to manage it. It's yours. You own it. You earned it. That's a great thing, guys. Nothing wrong with having that in our plan. Because I will tell you, not everybody's going to get a hotel. Some people might get a little cabin by the river, and that's fine. That's in, they're in heaven. But I'll tell you guys, listen, I don't know what you feel about this, but I want to be in the front row. I, I, I'm not comfortable being in the cheap seats. 
You know, I go to a basketball game, and the last thing I want to do, I go see the Pistons. The last thing I want is to seat way up in the boonies where you can't see anything. You've got to bring binoculars to see the floor. No, I want to be in the main seat. I want to be on the main floor. And I'm still in the palace. I mean, I'm still in the, where the Pistons are playing, but I'm not seeing the game very well. Can I tell you, the guys, heaven's going to be that way to some regard. There are going to be those that are in the front row, and there are going to be those that are in the back row, still in heaven, But because of what they've done here, God's going to reward us differently because of what we've done according to his word. That should motivate us. That should motivate us to be holy people and to be righteous and to work for people and to look for other people as more important than us, to to live a life of servanthood like Jesus lived. If we can live like Jesus, you will have the best rewards because Jesus was a servant. He didn't come to claim anything. He came to give, give everything. And that's exactly what he did. So this morning, I just want to challenge us all this morning. How are we living our lives? Are we living our lives for striving for the things here? Even the good things? Or can we kind of lay that aside and strive for the eternal things, the things that are going to last forever? Would you pray with me? Father, I just come to you in Jesus' name. And I thank you for your word of encouragement to us today. I thank you, Lord, that you are giving us truth of your word spoken in a way that hopefully we can understand and that we can grasp it and we can move in it in a way that would give us the assurance that you're, being, that you're pleased with us. God, I know you love me and I appreciate the fact that you love me. I really do. But my appreciation of that is going to be shown by how much I love you back and how much I want to work to please you and to serve people and to be your hands and feet in this world. So help me with that. Challenge us today with what that looks like this week as we go through our days. How can I apply this word? How can I be that servant mentality today, this week, for other people. Thank you for your motivation for us today. We just give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing the song that Jackie and the team are playing right now is the time that we'll just worship the Lord as we praise him. You Father, do that, would you please, for us today? 
would you just draw us closer to you? I know that's your plan, that's your will, that, you, that we would be so close to you that we could walk and talk and have communion with you at all times. So Father, I pray that as you draw us, that we are willing to draw near to you, that we're willing to walk alongside you and hold, hold your hand and walk closely with you today, totally doing everything we can to please you, knowing that that doesn't earn our, your love, but it earns your smile. And I love your smile. And I just pray, Father, that as, you, as we go to our homes today and, and as we do our activities, that you would just continue to bless, challenge us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.